So Anne-Marie read to us from Acts chapter 8. It's probably worth having it open if, you, if you'd like to follow because we're actually going to just run through it again, basically, and uh, look at different aspects of uh, the things that uh, we heard about when she read to us. Uh, the first part of it is, is this, the first three verses. As we heard, it's just after Stephen and the death thereof. A guy called Saul was very much um, behind a lot of the persecution. Uh, the church persecuted and scattered. On the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Saul, prior to his conversion, a name change to Paul, began to destroy the church. You know, it's hard for most of us to comprehend what it feels like to be under great persecution for our faith, isn't it? Okay, we've probably all been teased and mocked for being believers um, and very embarrassing and degrading it can feel at times. It catches us at the wrong moments. I recall working as a shipping agent at Ipswich Docks in 1970 and the reaction I got from the dockers when publicly confessing my faith in Christ. One day with my very long hair at the time and my big New Life in Jesus badge on the lapel, some of you will remember them, I briefly met the company's chief executive officer My manager then took him out to lunch, asked him what he wanted to drink. A double whiskey, he apparently replied, I've just met Jesus. And uh, hardly persecution, is it? But I was well mocked that afternoon in the office. I also recall how self-conscious I was as a 24-year-old pastor stepping outside my front door the morning after, being the sole subject of a major front-page headline in the local newspaper, which angrily opposed what, in my mind, still... Uh, was a completely right and godly decision I made when leading the church. So despised and misunderstood, stared at, ridiculed, but hardly persecuted. eh? Um, And in my work in Central Asia these days, I've come very close to being swept up in the violent opposition to the church, fights breaking out around me, vehicles surrounded and getting a bit jostled, that sort of thing. And in another time and in another country I was summoned to the office of the cabinet of government ministers temporarily blacklisted and told who I could and who I could not associate with. But hey, I really still don't know anything of the depth of powerlessness and fear and injustice and despair that can be felt by those who have no advocates, whose documents are being taken away, whose families are threatened with abuse and who are powerless to resist or to flee but who are still determined to faithfully confess Christ and pray for those that persecute them. What do we mean by persecution? So easy to say, um, but uh, complex to unpack. Release International, I've had a go at it, they say a situation where Christians are repetitively, persistently and systematically inflicted with grave or serious suffering or harm and deprived of or significantly threatened with deprival of their basic human rights because of a difference that comes from being a Christian that the persecutor will not tolerate. It's a fair enough uh, comment. But hanging around and taking it on the chin is not the only biblical response to persecution. Here, in Acts chapter 8, as at other times, the apostles scattered Other responses to persecution that we can read of in the scriptures include stay public, stay but go underground, endure, 
scatter and proclaim the gospel, which is what these guys did, scatter and deny the gospel, fall away completely. I'm not saying they're all credible, but they're all there in the scriptures. And uh, let's have a go. According to the World Evangelical Alliance, over 200 million Christians in at least 60 countries are denied fundamental human rights solely because of their faith. That is an extraordinary number of people. And Release International suggests that the persecution facing Christians is the largest human rights violation issue in the world today. I wonder if we can just lift our hearts for a moment, just take a little moment and pray for those. Maybe the figures are right, maybe they're wrong. We know some real stuff going on that gets to the absolute core of your being. You know, and just those tiny moments where I've known just, just being able to watch the fear in people's eyes. Let's pray for those, our brothers and sisters in this global gospel, while we sit here relatively comfortably in the UK. It may not always be that way, of course. Father, we do lift our hearts again this morning. For those we can hardly imagine, feeling things and enduring things that we can hardly imagine. But they have covenant with you and we have covenant with you and therefore we have covenant with one another. And we name them as our brothers and sisters. Whether they're responding in a way that pleases you or a way that worries you, we ask you, Lord, to bless, to protect, to envision, to whisper secrets of your love and endurance into their hearts today. Let righteousness come. Let justice roll. May the kingdom come. May your word and your spirit endure, and may the impact of your kingdom reach the hearts of many more people around those who are persecuted today. In Jesus' name, amen. But our subject, the gospel, is for all. It's for the persecutors. And soon Saul, this violent persecutor of the church who approved of Stephen's killing and put many believers into prison, was to meet Jesus in a radical and supernatural way. How do you feel when someone you despise or someone you fear or a convicted murderer or a corrupt politician in prison says that they come to Christ? Like Ananias, we'll probably read about him later, another, another day, who was commissioned to go and see Saul becoming Paul. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, is this for real? It won't last. It's about time. Well, let's just wait and see if there's any fruit comes of it. Or on the other end of the spectrum, have you sometimes heard people say about someone with a really nice, pleasant character, oh, he'd make a great Christian? <laughs> What's that all about? As though having a character or a lifestyle that impresses us is what becoming a Christian is all about. No, 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 no. The gospel is for all. Not according to our works and deeds and personality type, not according to our track record, but for all those who bend the knee willingly gratefully repenting of their sins and who by faith invite Christ to take over their lives as Lord. So we move on to verses 4 to 8. This is about Philip in Samaria. <coughs> Excuse me, those who scattered, preached wherever they went. The gospel is for all. Philip went to a city in Samaria, we're not told which one, uh, where he proclaimed the Messiah and demonstrated the power of Christ with signs and wonders. So what do we know about the Samaritans? A mixed blood race resulting from the intermarriage of Israelites 
who were left behind when the people of the northern kingdom were exiled and Gentiles who were brought into the land by the Assyrians. And I think there's a scripture there. Yeah, you could look that up in 2 Kings, find out some of the history. But by Jesus' day, there was bitter hostility and antagonism that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Remember how shocked the disciples were when to find Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, and how Jesus used a story of the good Samaritan in reply to the question, who is my neighbour? Apparently, Elim Church, International Church up the road, recently reenacted the story of the good Samaritan in one of their meetings. And apparently the guy beaten up and left on the ground wore an Ipswich shirt. I don't mean in Luke 10, I mean at Elim. And the, the priest and the Levite then walked past on the other side, wearing priesty sort of clothes and Levitish sort of clothes. And yeah, you guessed it. The Good Samaritan came along in a green and yellow, an orange shirt. He was a canary. Or in local parlance, a budgie. East Anglian? Yeah. On Anglian news? Yeah. But one of us? Is the Pope a Baptist? So... That was the same way the Jews regarded the Samaritans. However, the gospel is for all. And almost always the Samaritans are spoken of favourably in the New Testament and they responded to Jesus and to the early church enthusiastically. So, verses 6 to 8 of Acts chapter 8, the people listened carefully, demons came out, lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. So on we go. This is the section we didn't read. It would have been a bit long to do so. It's about a guy who's called Simon, and he was a sorcerer. And he was believed and baptized in water, saw astonishing signs that was happening through Philip. Peter and John came down um, once they'd heard about it um, from Jerusalem. Uh, After that, the believers were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, Simon, the sorcerer, saw this, and he actually offered money for the Holy Spirit uh, and was rebuked. And he repented, and Peter returned, and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching in the villages. Fancy someone offering money for the Holy Spirit. But we don't always get the hang of things straight away, do we? Uh, Who didn't have baggage when they first came to Christ, since and after coming to Christ? Who hasn't had to be convicted and rebuked and forgiven for a few dodgy attitudes and ungodly actions along the way? But in the wonderful grace and mercy of God, this gospel is for all. Praise the Lord. Not just for those who get it instantly or who turn into saints within the fortnight, but also for those of us who stumble along one step forward, one step back, and gradually, slowly get there. The gospel is for all. Where are we now? 26 to 40, that final section, that Philip and the Ethiopian angel told Philip to go southwards towards Gaza. On the way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch who was the queen's treasurer, returning in his chariot from worshipping God in Jerusalem. The Ethiopian was reading Isaiah and invited Philip to tell him about Jesus. Well, apparently this wasn't as surprising as it sounds due to the Jewish settlements in Upper Egypt and given the considerable impact made by Jewish life and thought on the Ethiopians at the time. But Philip told him the good news about Jesus and the Ethiopian was baptised. The gospel is for all, all nations, all cultures, 
Even though I had a friend once who went on two teams with me, she never quite came to know the Lord. And I just happened to joke about God being an Englishman once, or Jesus being an Englishman. And she looked around and said, he was, wasn't he? (laughs) Um, All nations, all cultures, all religious backgrounds, all spheres of society, please would you pray for my wonderful wife, Bella. She has two jobs this week. She'll walk just around the corner from our home where her job is to give very menial hands-on care and support to a few adults with learning disabilities. Next week, she'll do her other job, which involves flying to Azerbaijan, where, her other, where she will begin to negotiate the UK pre-Olympic Games arrangements with the Minister of Youth and Sport and the Vice President of the Azerbaijan Olympic Committee. The Gospel is for all. And one day God might ask you to share the gospel with Samaritans and the next day with Ethiopians. One day with the homeless alcoholic, next day with the Chancellor of the Exchequer. The gospel is for all, for the brilliant academic and for the illiterate rural peasant. The gospel satisfies, isn't this wonderful? The gospel satisfies the most complex minds. And praise God for philosophers and apologists such as uh, C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and Josh McDowell and people who can reason with the world's best minds all for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is for all. And praise God for those who have noticed that actually 75% of the Bible is stories rather than abstract and intellectual concepts and who've therefore committed themselves to working with those who can only receive information orally, who've never learned to read or understand what a book is, which, believe it or not, includes 75% of the unreached and least people, uh, least reached people groups around the world and 95% of the women of the Islamic world. And praise God for those... We're sending some of my colleagues on a course in a few weeks' time, which is looking at the presentation of the gospel through pictures, through stories, for those who wouldn't understand what written word is all about. The gospel is for all. Anyway, the Spirit suddenly took Philip away to Azotus or Ashdod, and if you go to go there today, it's at least 20 miles away. He got there in an instant... Then we find him going up to Caesarea, further up the coast. Fascinating, this, being transported in the spirit, some people call it. And it wasn't unique to Philip. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about being caught up to the third heaven, whatever that meant. And Enoch in the Old Testament, also Ezekiel and Elijah, all in the Old Testament, knew what it was to suddenly find themselves somewhere else. Amazing. But as for Philip... Uh, he was evangelist, he settled uh, in Caesarea, we read that in Acts 21, Paul talks of staying in his home, he had four daughters, all of whom prophesied, blimey, how scary is that? Get an invite for tea there and you'd have to be on your best behaviour. Who else was given the title of evangelist in the scriptures? Uh, Absolutely right, no one. He's the only one who's given the title of evangelist in the whole of the scriptures. Paul urged Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Evangelists, we read in the scriptures, are not there to do all the preaching or the witnessing. We tend to think they are. They're the experts who who we put on platforms to do it all. Uh, We're all witnesses, but we're not all evangelists. 
evangelists, according to the New Testament, Ephesians 4, are a gift from Christ himself to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip the saints for the work of evangelism. Stuff that Julie's doing, very much in line with this. So that we can all grow up into his fullness. To note, when I was a pastor, I found it was, I was regularly able to lead people to Jesus. It was easy in a way, in the sense that I had regular opportunity in public meetings to bring people who visited the church to the point of decision. And then I prayed with them and God did the rest. It was wonderful. But outside of that meeting environment, you know, I was just useless. I, I never knew what to say. And I had a friend who'd regularly give hitchhikers a lift and they would seem to jump in his car and he would say, do you want to know about the Lord? And they would respond by crying, what must I do to be saved? Well, that's what it seemed like to me. And it never worked that way for me. They would jump in my car and ask them, do you want to know about the Lord? And they'd look at me squint and say, no, I want a lift. <laughs> now, I was determined to crack that once and for all. And I changed my tack softly, softly, I thought. Take an interest in them. Ask them a few questions about themselves. So the next time I stopped for a hitchhiker, he jumped in and we set off down the road and I asked him what he did for a living and he told me he was a student. And then he said, what about you? What do you do for a living? Oh, glory to God, I thought. This is the opening I've been waiting so long for. I'm a pastor, I replied casually. Really, he said? My dad was a plasterer as well. <laughs> we spent the rest of the journey talking about thistle and finish. And I'm not sure I've ever given a hitchhiker a lift since. So ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is for all and to be shared by all, not just by the successful evangelist, but for all those whose captain and hero is Jesus. And it's great these days, you know. Have you noticed? I think there's a real groundswell of natural ease and confidence growing in believers uh, to share the gospel with Jesus and their friends uh, of Jesus with their friends and neighbours and workmates. You know, for many, many years, probably decades, or definitely decades, we've, we've not been Christian by culture, we've been Christian by choice. And no one can say we live in a Christian culture, although many in other parts of the world think we do. So more and more people are genuinely, genuinely intrigued by our story. I was talking with Simon um, uh, Barrington about this, and he was saying a lot of the like leaders that he's networking with, are saying there's a real confidence these days. It's not just, you know, dare I speak up for Jesus. It's just finding, you know, just, just, just being so 100% happy about knowing God uh, that we won't have any form of embarrassment, we won't hold back, we won't soften down just through, you know, fear of embarrassment. And I can see it as well. It's, it, it's credible and it's something real. Try talking to someone this week about what Christ means for you. You'll see what I mean. Would you look up Acts 29 now, please, in verse 1. Will someone read it to us, please? Someone brave? Acts 29 and verse 1. Oh, it's not there, is it? Sorry. Uh, it's us. We're Acts 29. 
The story goes on through decades and centuries and now millenniums. The the gospel is for all, as crisp and relevant today as it was then. And if I may, I'd like to tell you a little more of my own story, part of my Act 29, which hopefully will illustrate once more that the gospel is for all. Would that be okay? For the first six years of my life, I lived in El Soham with my father and mother and older sister, when I say in Elsome, it was actually a couple of miles down a tiny back lane halfway between Elsome and Kettleborough. Not the end of the earth, but it did share the same postcode. From this 600-year-old house, frighteningly haunted, with horrible green mould on the walls, with no toilet, water, gas or electricity, uh, from there you could see Saxton Mill across the fields. My father and his brother, his brother worked on their father's, my grandfather's farm, But when my dad injured his back carrying a sack of peas, he sold the house for 250 quid and we moved to Felixstowe. There, working for an insurance company, my father's life really fell apart. Depressed on drugs and having more than one affair, he developed a dreadfully debilitating stammer and was eventually sectioned to a mental hospital in Belmont in Surrey. During the weekdays, my mother, a physically frail but incredibly resilient Abaddonian, would keep this vulnerable little family going, and at weekends my father would come home. I loved and hated weekends all at the same time. I longed for the family to be together and complete, but I couldn't begin to cope with the wild swing of emotions and the unexplainably tense atmosphere when my father came home. Dixon of Doc Green theme music can still make me weep because I associate it with those weekends. And with increasing regularity, Jehovah's Witnesses would knock on the door. Sensing the vulnerability of my mother, they tried to persuade her to join their sect. And with at least some nominal God awareness in her history and in considerable turmoil, she decided to visit the local Anglican vicar, who, I remember to this day, just radiated the love and the joy of the Lord. And he led her to the cross and to a real, rescued, redeemed relationship with Jesus. I was eight at the time. And a few months later, our family was invited to attend a rally, as it was called, at Felix Doe Spa Pavilion, a big Christian crusade event, something like a mini Billy Graham festival, um, and where local band Messengers of the Cross were doing what must have been one of their very early gigs. I remember where we sat, near the back, central block on the right-hand side. I don't recall what was said, but I knew I wanted a relationship with Jesus, like the one that I could so clearly see had transformed my mother. So when an appeal was made for those who wanted to receive Christ, I asked my dad, who'd been dragged along for the evening, to come with me to the front of the auditorium. Whether he swore or folded his arms and pretended not to hear me or just sat there embarrassed... I can't remember, but I went forward anyway, just as I was without one plea. I recall the slightly bewildered counsellor, who presumably was all trained up to talk and pray with responding adults. Well, he got the short straw and was assigned to talk to me. I'm not sure what he said, if anything, but I do recall him tousling my hair, giving me a booklet to read and sending me back to my parents. Such lame counselling could have been a disappointment and an anticlimax to me, but, you know, it wasn't at all. God's damage was done. I, I know, I know without a shadow of doubt that I repented and accepted Jesus Christ in my heart that night. 
and that his Holy Spirit came into my heart. I was saved, I was rescued from my sin, forgiven for my sins, and have been grateful Christian ever since. Now, years later, when I was 30, I was invited to lead worship and speak at a pastor's conference in New Delhi in India. It was my first trip outside of Western Europe. One afternoon, feeling a little overwhelmed and missing my family, I visited a Christian bookshop that had been recommended to me. And picking up a copy of Michael Green's book, New Life, New Lifestyle, this is what I read. It was a hot afternoon. I was watching the curate chat to the large number of elderly people who had gathered for their regular informal Thursday afternoon meeting. I was struck by the way he seemed to care. Then I met his wife. I noticed their relaxed trust in one another and their obvious harmony. I remarked to my friend, the vicar, that he'd got a splendid new curate, even if he was a bit older than most. Then he told me the story. Actually, I could do no better than give it to you in the curate's words. He said, when I was in my early 30s, I became involved with another woman. I fell into sin, sin of the ugliest kind, which made me reject all thoughts of God, which very nearly broke up our family life. Five months in a neurosis hospital under the care of some of the finest psychiatrists made no difference to my attitude of life. I came out of hospital worse than when I went in. I had developed a terrible stammer. I took drugs at night to try and help me sleep. I took pet pills during the day to try and keep me going. I went out of my way to avoid contact with anyone at all. I fainted in the streets and I jeered at anyone who tried to help me. I was determined to carry on with my selfish and sinful way of life, no matter what hurt it caused other people. Then one Christmas, my son Alan, who was then just eight years old, gave me a picture of the Lord Jesus standing at the door knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He said, for a long time I deliberately turned away from that picture. But the knocking became more and more insistent until finally at 10pm on the 26th of June 1961, I utterly... In utter desperation and almost unbelief, I said, Lord, you can say you change other people's lives. Come into my heart and change mine. At last, I'd taken that step of faith and immediately my prayer was answered. There was a complete transformation in my life from that moment onwards. And then Michael Green goes on, undoubtedly there was, etc., etc. That was it. Jesus knocking at the door of my dad's heart. Uh, the gospel is for all. It's for Paul the persecutor and for Simon the sorcerer. It's for the sidelined Samaritan and for the elite Ethiopian. It's for those whose conversation was sudden and spectacular. And the gospel is for those whose journey is gradual and bumpy. It's for the brilliant university professor and for the hillside herdsman who's never learned to read. Across the globe this morning, there are Muslim background believers and there are Messianic Jews, rescued murderers, humbled royalty, all who equally name the name of Jesus. The gospel is for all. It's for the innocent, bewildered eight-year-old and for the unfaithful husband and father who messed up in every way he could think of. It's for those walking their dogs along the prom past Felix de Spa Pavilion this morning. 
And for those who right now are frantically sweeping the Commonwealth pavements outside that bookshop in Delhi, the gospel is for all. See, it isn't, it isn't reason or intelligence or academic argument that prevents people from coming to Christ. It's not about status or behavior. It's attitude of heart. It's the demands of the cross. It's about letting go and trusting in the love of God. It's about allowing Jesus Christ to become the anchor, the captain, the hero, the director, the master, the rescuer. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man, an arrogant man, a self-sufficient man to enter the kingdom of God. He also said that anyone who would not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it, will never enter it. He also said that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. Today, risen and glorified, he simply says to you, my grace is sufficient for you. The gospel is for all. And may I just say to the man this morning who is actually being quite deeply disturbed by the things I've been saying, I urge you to come to Christ. I urge you to come to Christ today, please. Tug on my sleeve at the end and I'll pray for you. The gospel is for all Father, it's beyond our comprehension. How, how could you do it? How could something so simple be so all-embracing? I guess as you open doors to our understanding, we can see it was simple, but it was complete. It was fundamental. It involved death preceded life and, and for, for Jesus and, and for us too. Lord, we're sorry for the times that we think our, we try and think our way into your presence. We try and analyze things. We try and behave or perform in a certain way that somehow will give public impression that we've, I don't know, we've come to terms with life or something. Where all the while you're saying, whoever we are, whatever background, whatever thinking, whatever age and whatever culture, if in our hearts we're prepared to be broken, if we're prepared to die to ourselves, if we're prepared to crawl, as it were, through the eye of a needle, shedding everything else that we've depended on, and we look up and we realise the gospel is for all. I thank you so much for welcoming us, Lord. I bless you.